Welcome to The Theatre Project. Today, The Theatre Project is thinking about eSports. eSports has been around since 1978, when Atari laid the foundation with a Space Invaders tournament. The early gaming classic was played at the 1980 Space Invaders Championship with over 10,000 gamers competing. I sit down with Emmy Award-winning producer Willow Ford to discuss this old but new art form, how they became involved with it, and what they think the future holds. So Willow, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Our podcasts usually focus on different areas of the arts and kind of doing a deep dive into it. And I have to admit, I did not know much about esports when uh, we first spoke. I watched a few and it was really interesting, very much like the Super Bowl with multiple cameras everywhere and, and all of that. So I think our listeners will find it interesting. You graduated from Rowan with a degree in journalism and radio, TV, and film, Yes, right? Production. Mm -hmm. What did you see yourself doing after graduation? I saw myself somewhere in franchise broadcast TV. When I was younger, I loved crime dramas. That was my thing. I loved to track the ratings every week to the point that I would be able to pretty accurately guess what was going to be on still the next year and what wasn't and what uh, time slot was going to be moved to because... The time slot had a whole like meta and so did like the the day of the week also really mattered. So like all that like really interests me and that was either like TV ratings or somewhere in a in a crime drama sort of like show that I would be working on. That was the original idea. Looking back, did not do anything to go towards that goal in particular. The ratings what I did working on a crime drama set definitely didn't do much. So So what was your first job out of school? My first job was a video production specialist for a youth soccer league. So I would be the one in charge of organizing all of their tech, making sure all the tech works. We would go out and film eight fields of footage for an entire day. So it was hundreds of hundreds of hours by the end of the weekend. Then I would be tasked with either coordinating our editors to and our loggers to like notice what highlights the player did, then they would edit it, then we would send that to the client and we'd get revisions, or they would just get the raw footage straight from, from the cameras. So how did you get from there and from your original dream to mm -hmm. esports? Well, it was through journalism, oddly enough. I was working with a friend on a piece of content that we were doing for Overwatch esports and specifically tier two, it was called uh, Overwatch Contenders Daily. And we had decided to go to, we decided to meet up for the first time uh, in Los Angeles for an event that was going on. It was the grand finals of Contenders or something similar. Contenders being the, uh, I think, minor leagues for Overwatch esports. And while I was there, I met a whole bunch of people and they were really great. And then we got to World Cup and that's when someone came out to me and was like, hey, by the way, like I heard you, you have like TV production like experience from, from college. We're doing one man band productions in just in the comfort of our bedrooms. Do you want to come help us out? And I was like, oh, this seems fun. I would go to the nine to five of that other job and then immediately come home grab something to eat really quick and then be in my room until like 2 a.m. doing broadcast productions for esports. 
And because I was the only one doing it as consistently as I was, got a lot more experience in in, in game observing, which is where I ended up like really loving and just kept on working with people and my in-game observing improved, uh, improved rather to the point that uh, I was brought on as a esports observer for the Overwatch League for a couple of seasons. And that was really sick. Now, how long has that been in existence, esports, other than the kids playing Call of Duty or something and kind of talking to each other, but the whole enterprise of it, the business of it, how long has that been around? Do you know? This gets a little bit more interesting. So esports has been around for a while. I think the first esport like competition might have been like a collegiate space war competition in either like 1972 or 1982. Wow. I forget specifically where that was, but you know, people have been competing in, in video games forever. It's just that very recently esports has kind of become like the hot thing to invest in within the past five years. When Overwatch League first started, for example, which was the first thing that I that I did in esports like professionally and full time, Overwatch League had $20 million buy-ins for their teams. So they would be like auctioning off spots in the league originally back in 2019, and it would go for millions upon millions of dollars. And that was just for the slot. That wasn't for team play. That wasn't for players. It wasn't for staff. And it's a full, like, robust, like, system. Some teams have uh, coaches, analysts, team chefs I've seen, team trainers I've seen. Like, it, it gets really, really complex. There is money involved in, in esports for sure. I saw where they were taking these these young kids, setting them up in an apartment with a chef, training seven, eight hours a day of just doing nothing but playing the game, working as a team, what do you think the average age is of a gamer right now? Oh, a player right now. Mid, mid-20s, mid-20s or, or younger. Because the last match I saw, which I think was the Fortnite World Cup. Oh, cool. Started out with, I think, 100 yes. players. And the young man who won was 13 years old and took home $3 million, which just like... Yep blew my mind. And I know from our previous conversation, there is interest now in college. A friend of mine's son was a gamer, had sponsors and all of that. And now I think he's teaching a course in it somewhere in Texas, like a college course. Mm-hmm. So, so, so many questions running through my head. How long does a match usually take? Depends on the game. But I would say it would be an hour, but for most games, you have like a best of five or first to three, you know, that sort of thing. So that's, that's how you get like the longevity there in terms of like the runtime. So for example, Valorant Champions, I think was like first to first to three, best of five for their grand final. But don't... And is there, is there a lifespan associated with these young players who are practicing seven and eight hours a day? I know they have like masseuses for their, you know, carpal tunnel because of all the motor skills that are being used. And I know in some sports like football, you maybe play to your mid thirties and and then, you know, you're looking to retire. Is there an end point for these young players coming up where, because I talked to my nephew, he's going to turn 30. And I said, Hey, you want to come on and talk to Willow with me when I talk? And he said, to be honest, Aunt Mare, that bubble I missed it. He said, I I was a couple of years too late and it's beyond me. And there are kids now doing things that there's no way I could do. So I compare that to kind of like me and Miss Pac-Man 
and then where he is and then jump again to get to where these other kids are. So yeah, so is there an age where they most likely, you know, tap out? I think there is definitely one, but it depends on the person specifically. I've seen people in their early like 30s playing, still playing, which for esports is very, is old for, for an esports player. Um, again, like you mentioned, you definitely see it going towards the, the younger side, mainly because of reflexes, which are way more sharp when, when you're younger. It doesn't, for, for so many people are like, does that really make a difference? Yes, it does. Yes, it does. It a hundred percent does. Yeah, I, I can see that. Some players, however, do go into like coaching or content creation. Like there is, there's obviously a life after playing because at that point you're only like 30. And for some players, um, actually what doesn't cut off their, their, what doesn't make them retire isn't age. It could be, um, depending on, on what region you're from or what country you're from, could also be military service, like mandatory military service. So that can also lead to, to retirements pretty commonly in, in esports like League of Legends and in others. Okay. So, are, and there are sponsorships available? Oh, yeah. And college, is it becoming like a college course where colleges would recruit somebody based on their gaming skills similar to any other sport? I think that's definitely coming. And I actually teach a couple courses at Rowan University. So in eSports, some colleges are taking this very seriously and they're starting to beef up like what their arenas look like to make it accessible for eSports. Like they have like eSports, eSports like arenas or, or PC cafes that, that teams can play in. They're starting to get like courses. Some people are trying to get minors, which is wild. Esports is definitely up and coming in, in terms of like in academia. But I think the biggest question there is how how academia applies esports is definitely a big question that hasn't been 100% answered yet. Okay. You said up and coming because I did see some things where, and I'm sure some of it is just the headline, so it grabs your attention. Um, but is esports over? Are these companies who are paying all these sponsorships, putting all this money in, getting any of it back? Because I didn't see any advertising I didn't see any big, you know, signs or, or banners or anything saying who was joining it. So that's one of the biggest things that's going on in esports right now. It's either called the esports winter or the esports bubble. It's something that people far smarter than me truly understand better. But um, at the end of the day, what it really comes down to is there were a lot of investment in esports, especially in 2019, right around when Overwatch League like really started. And, you know, not just Overwatch League, other games and other titles definitely got an influx of money from, from investors. But now, five years later, we're four, five, give or take, uh, investors are looking to get their return. And in a lot of places, they don't. For example, and I will link you this somewhere, but there was a rumor going around. It might have been confirmed at this point, but there was a, there was a rumor going around where for the Overwatch League in particular, the owners of the teams will get to decide if they go into the league next year. So if they play, if they don't and they back out of the league, they get a $6 million buyout. If they don't leave, they get nothing. <laughs> So they're essentially paying teams $6 million to leave the Overwatch League because investors haven't seen their returns and that's starting to get them a little angry. So that's the biggest, most glaring one, at least that I can think of. And again, it's mainly because I'm from Overwatch Esports originally. But there are definitely like, there's a lot of like layoffs. There's a lot of, of people starting to like tighten their belts, all of that. 
yeah, this this esports winter, as they've been calling it, has been very, very rough. But it's definitely a scary time in in esports when it comes to to that entire thing. Because there's just so many layoffs. There's so many other things going on. And it's just, it's wild. And touching on the Emmy, congratulations. Thank you. That's awesome. The Emmy was for a YouTube production, correct? So the worlds and anything that, that like Riot Games produces on a global, like international tournament, it's always on Twitch. It's always on YouTube. It's on Riot Games' website. That, that's where, where it was based. Um, they stream to multiple places. And does it ever end up on TV? Because that it got me thinking, like, are the Emmys segueing into things on YouTube? Is that becoming an outlet? It's not something you usually hear about. Right. When the Emmys are on, you're thinking, oh, it's CBS or NBC or something on like a Netflix series. But I didn't know that they went out to YouTube, which is great because there's a lot of content on there. And, you know, I wish people could get recognized for it. I will say if you're one, no, I do not think Champs or, or Worlds or anything was on TV. So so Emmys are definitely skewing more towards digital content is what I would say. The award in particular was Outstanding Esports Coverage, or specifically for esports. And I don't think any of the nominees were broadcasted on traditional TV. I think for that category in particular, it was specifically YouTube, Twitch, and that sort of thing. I will say, though, you were talking about YouTube, but the one that, that esports really thrives in is Twitch, which is the gaming live stream platform from Amazon. Yeah, Twitch which is 100% the like number one place that people usually get to, at least for, for English broadcast. One of the other things that amazed me while I was watching it were the announcers. Yeah. Trying to keep track, especially when you start out with a hundred people, even on the teams, you know, when I was watching just two teams going at it and it was like best three out of five or something, knowing the complexities of each game that they're announcing. So the wall's going up and this is crashing and, you know, they know how to call it. Do they go through any kind of training or are these just people who grew up with the sport, that particular game, and know all the ins and outs and and can follow it? Because that has to be hard. Oh, it absolutely is. Especially for, you were talking about Fortnite. Fortnite is a battle royale. Battle royales in particular, with the, with the exception of, I would argue, because, sorry, we're going to go back for a second. Uh, I'm a in-game observer by trade, so... In-game observing is in-game camera operation inside the game. What you're seeing happening inside the game is an in-game observer, like operating the the switches and making sure that you can follow the game as well as you can. And for both an observer and a caster, these are people that have been involved in the scenes for, for years. They can sometimes play the game, maybe not well, but they do play the game. But what you really need to know when you're either casting or observing is just a, the, the game sense, absolutely. So, you know, like, hey, like they have this available, which means they can do X, Y, and Z. They need to know the players themselves because some players really like to, for example, always go right when they're flanking, stuff like that. Like you can notice that in game VODs. And third one is just a general eye for storytelling. Um, because when it comes down to it, what you're trying to tell is a story here. And it's the story of the game. And that's something that casters follow really well. And observers need to kind of like, lead the charge in so that way the casters can see what they need to see in order to tell that story. So when there's a competition Mm -hmm. with, let's say, two teams of five players each, how many in-game observers are on that? Depends on the game. 
and depends on the money involved. So for example, when you're first starting out in game observing, let's take Overwatch, for example, because that's 5v5, like you mentioned. If you are where I was when I was first starting out, you are doing everything. You are free cam, you are POV, you are queuing talent, you are adjusting audio, you are changing scenes, you are broadcasting everything. Now, let's say what I was doing four years later in the Overwatch League, the only thing I'd be doing is directing a team of four observers. Two free cam, two POV. I would have all of their feeds and I would swap between them. I would not care about audio. I would not care about syncing talent. I would not care about talking to talent in terms of like queuing them and stuff like that. We There's a back and forth between observers and casters always. But I, I mean, in this, chan- in, in this uh, situation, uh, like talent managing is not a thing I would have done any of it. So the only thing I'd be doing in the tier one professional space is observer directing, talking to my observers, getting the narrative set, all of us working together to work with the casters to make that narrative and to make the the production go. That's what you'd be doing in tier one. But if you were just starting out, you would do everything in its mother in the the back line of a a broadcast. And you have, how many screens would you be watching? Usually it was like a really big TV just split into four. And then there would be another TV, uh, we would call it a four box. And then there would be another TV that had program and another TV that had previews. Generally speaking, it was three. If it was me, myself, and I alone, I would have the game on this, on, on my first screen. Then I would have talent in a webcam somewhere on another screen. And then I would have like all of my like monitoring, audio monitoring, OBS, which is a, a free broadcast software on another one. So it would also be like three three screens either way. And when you're watching the game, you're seeing all 10 players at one time, right? No. So in that, you just got to guess that you're in the right person. (laughs) Or I say guess, but really after observing for so many, for, for so long and knowing the players in particular, yeah, you'll know that like, oh, this person is way farther ahead than everybody else. They're trying to do something. Or, or, you know, that sort of thing where you're you're inferring based off of the player, what guns they use, what character they're using, what position they usually do, what what are they doing on the map, like all of that you kind of like infer and then just take them as soon as as soon as you think they're going to do something. Sometimes it works out and it really works out. Other times it does not. <laughs> so it, it it's a uh, that's like the challenge, you know, that's the part of the artistry, I would argue, for in game observing where you need to know what these players are doing you need to know what that role does and you need to know like oh so based off of what they're positioning i think they're going to do this this and this and then show it in a way that's readable and something that the audience even like the player's mom who doesn't understand what's going on but brought their kid here because the kid wanted to go you want to be able to tell them that story you know you want them to be able to get involved in it and invested in it and while a lot of that has to do with the actual storytelling of the people that are involved because what matters to to people is not the game it's the people playing it the observing matters just as much because it gives them something to understand like to, to kind of follow while this game is happening. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I guess I'm still, because there are, in a in a 5v5, there are still 10 people who right. are playing all at once. I will say, it's not just 10 people, though, because in most games, you have a free cam. So in free cam, like a drone cam, which is essentially, um, you can go anywhere on the map. So it's not just those 10 perspectives. It's also, you also can have a bird's eye view if you really want to. 
So there, there's a lot more angles than than just the players to be able to, to make it readable. And that's just on the team challenge. When you get into where you have 100 people in the final, right? you just kind of focus on the ones that you think are mm-hmm. higher up there and you know see where they're going. That's where the synergy between the casters and the observers take place because the casters will probably mention a whole, or the analyst desk, like the talent, on-air talent, would mention, oh, hey, we're really looking at this team, this team, and this team. And it gives the observers to be like, oh, cool. So we'll just follow that narrative, you know? Like when, for example, like Evil Geniuses dropping into the map or something, we want to see how they loot uh, in terms of like a, a battle royale to see like what kind of weapons that they have moving into the next into the next circle and that sort of thing. Like there's a, a narrative that you can pretty easily figure out if you do some, you know, pre-prod, some, some preparation on the teams especially with like the bigger well-known teams coming in. Right. And all of your editing is it's live. You're not for observing. Yes. Yeah. You're not recording the whole competition and then going back and saying, okay, well now I'll piece this together. It's happening real time. Yeah. We don't got time for that. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's all, it's all live. There are some like replay and tape replay aspects that, that it does involve like recording things, but that's like recording things that happen like, 20 seconds ago with that you know so there are some times where like we go to replay to show this really cool angle or to show this thing again but in slow-mo you know that sort of thing to kind of like help drive narratives home but yeah no generally speaking almost always it's live you may have like a couple seconds delay somewhere but nothing nothing major right and does each observer have a certain number of players or teams that they're watching or is it just anything they happen to see or is it what you're driving and telling them to watch generally speaking from my own experience it's usually you break up the teams into different for different observers and then for for like a battle royale in particular but Generally speaking, and based off of the experience that I've had across multiple different games, you do tend to research certain teams and then just try to cover as best you can. But the issue with that for like a first person shooter or a MOBA or anything that's doing like Swiss round or like group stages and then playoffs and that sort of thing is that you're going to eventually hit into everybody. So you do need to prepare for absolutely everyone. But I think the only exception I've ever had with that it's probably a battle royale where there's like 200 plus people in it. You don't have the brain capacity to, to like focus on everybody. So what I've seen is that everyone researches everyone, but focuses on like X amount of teams. And then when those teams are, are more towards like the final, like five or something, observers just kind of call out, Hey, like this person moves their camera a lot. Just be careful, that sort of thing. So it's a team effort in terms of like, working with like the tribal knowledge or like the group knowledge that everyone has and making sure that that like contributes to the overall storytelling that you're doing. So something you just said about this person moves their camera a lot. So going back to my Miss Pac-Man reference. Right. So as you're playing, there's Mm -hmm. a camera following Miss Pac-Man. Yes. We could say that for this example. yeah. Yeah. And there are cameras following the ghosts. Yep. You can be in the perspective of the ghosts like going around the map, or you can be in that overhead map that you usually play in and get like the overall view, the bird's eye view. Okay. And that's all built into the game itself. Yes. 
It's called a, a spectator slot, spectator client. So you're just accessing what they're allowing you to. And they have, I guess, a camera on the player from their laptop or computer. Or, and that's how you go in and out of, because I saw like side by side, you would see like the kid who was playing mm -hmm. and then what their character was doing. Yeah. Generally speaking, for any broadcast, you would have like the player cam. So you would be able to, to see them. And that's important because when something like incredible happens in the game, they react like players react the way that you would think. So to be able to associate, you know, a, a we call it a pop off, but like someone's excitement over something good happening in the game or someone like absolutely destroying everybody else in the round and, and the person like stands up and celebrates. That's the stuff that people want to see, because at the end of the day, like I mentioned before, what we're really interested in here is the story and like. Why should we care about these players? Well, because look how hard they're caring, you know? It, it's just another aspect of, of storytelling that people usually like like to see, you know? Like they, they like to see people and relate to people and watch people like thrive. And do you do those background stories on the players that you think are going to be performing well? You know, the ones that you kind of know are going to get up in the top 10 or... Oh, yeah. A across like every place I've worked with an ex with a very with one big exception you focus on the people that are playing and that means you know you have an idea of of you know where they came from be it you know the teams that they used to play in like the minor leagues to their like entire like team roster history because some of these players have been have been around for years so they've jumped around different teams which also can kind of a uh, uh, blend to some interesting storylines there because oh you're playing your former teammate from like two years ago you know that sort of thing so it, it helps to like lend to rivalries, that sort of thing. But yeah, no, you you definitely research the the players because now, especially as more players are getting like media trained and it's becoming more and more apparent that like people want to know who who they're watching. I assume they have followers on like Instagram and Twitter right. and yeah. Yeah. Do, are all of the competitions and I don't know if I'm calling them the right thing. That's right. Yeah. Competitions, tournaments. Tournaments. Okay. Are they always in an arena or do they sometimes take place where the players are remote, but still part of a team? Oh yeah. It depends. The ones that you were seeing are the ones that are like millions and millions of dollars invested. That's not always the case. When I was first work, like first, like getting into, into observing, I would be in my room, in my parents' house, on my PC, my casters would be in usually Canada. The players would be anywhere and everywhere across the world. The broadcast spans from like everyone is remote and everyone is doing this on a shoestring bu budget. And by that, I mean everyone's volunteer to everyone's in the same place, sponsored transportation to and from the venue, professional broadcast that you would see in the Super Bowl. And that's sort of it. It really depends on what game you're at, what event you're at, how much money is being invested. It can vary, but it can look exactly like the World Series. Yeah. If you're in the right place. If they do it correctly. Right. Is there a difference between producing a tournament and directing a tournament? And if so, what would that be? Yes. The director would just call the show like you would the normal, like a normal director in a normal like broadcast. Producers, the ones like behind the scenes doing everything possible to make sure that thing runs. It's it's much more like the, the stressful, like behind the scenes feel. 
Um, in terms of observing, that is also very different where observing has a very weird history with producing because producing originally just meant the person that was observing and doing all of the work in the background. And that's not really what a producer is supposed to be like identified as because the, the original thought was, oh, if you're a producer, then that means you produce the feeds. That's why we're calling you a producer. It's not why they're called a producer. So depending on the game that you're in, the production company that you're in, it depends on a lot of factors, what people call those roles. Because for a lot of people going into esports, they have a degree in something that isn't production. So one of the reasons why I got to really rise the ranks as fast as I did is because I had that broadcast past experience from college. So yeah, like esports brings in a whole bunch of people, but especially people that don't have previous broadcast experience originally, and they just kind of learn as they go in like the lower levels of esports productions where everything is remote, you're on your, your computer for like five hours or so for free, because that's how this works. And you're just grinding out the hours to get as much like experience as possible to eventually rise the ranks into the more professional production. Okay. And what does it cost to produce a tournament? And who pays that? Great question. From my experience, it's usually sponsorships, like in any esports broadcast, like sponsorships are a really big deal. Sometimes there's like viewership incentives for, for different, for, for like the, the higher up broadcast. But yeah, usually it's like sponsorships or for a lot of different games, it's the publisher that is putting on the broadcast event. I'm, I'm talking like tier one, like world championships, that sort of thing. It's the publisher that puts out. So what esports really is for a lot of companies, at least based off of my experience, is one big marketing budget. So the, the publisher will usually pay like somewhere like a marketing budget somewhere for esports because esports will sell your game and will sell skins and sell the players, which means that it sells people trying the game because they like the player. If that okay. Means. Where do you see the future of esports going? And I, and I know you don't have a crystal ball, but in your opinion, do you think it's growing? Do you think it's shrinking? I think it's stabilizing, but stabilizing is, but the road to it actually stabilizing is a very long and, and hectic one. And I think anyone in esports can, can kind of like attest to this where every other day there's some sort of layoff. Every other day there's, there's something like big happening that's like a negative in the esports space. And I think because of how inflated a lot of the investment was originally, it makes sense that we're starting to like even out, but in evening out, like you're losing people's jobs, people that had nothing to do with it being inflated, but are still being the ones that, that like pay for it. I think it'll stabilize. And I think the esports industry will still be here. What it looks like moving forward after the esports winter, after the esports bubble, that is up to anyone's guess. But I do think it will still be here because there's people that are still want to compete. There are people that still care about the stories. Their audiences have been like in the millions for the top broadcasts, like Worlds, Champ, Invitational, CDL, a couple of other ones. Esports will be here and will continue to be telling these great stories. I just think something's got to give and something's got to stabilize. <laughs> and I think it'll happen eventually. But we're in for, for an interesting couple of years until it does. And I think, you know, that's no different than going back probably... God, I don't even know how many years, 20, 30, where there was this big tech bubble, you know, and yes. everything was tech, tech, tech. And eventually that has to normalize. And then it was crypto 
and you know that blew up and then eventually that has to kind of come back and normalize so as with anything new it kind of has to go through its growing pains and normalize which i i guess is what they're going through right now yes i would i would argue that's exactly what we're going through it was weird also because crypto in particular also caused for for this sort of like winter because there was a lot of a lot of people decided to invest in crypto and it turned out to be a very bad idea who knew but yeah it's just like other industries starting to like normalize have also resulted in esports having to like more rapidly do that if that makes sense if somebody who's listening to this wants to get into as an observer or do anything how would you recommend they go about it is there anything you know what should they be doing Honestly, and one of the biggest things that set me apart when I was first starting out is that I would just, I would just freaking do it. That was the biggest thing. Hey, like, I'm just going to observe this. I'm going to learn. I'm going to get better. I'm going to go again. And that part is surprisingly easy for people to skip. And then they wonder why they're not getting any gigs. When I also, when I was younger, um, I would also observe things without casters. And the reason why is because I would record it. And it would give casters free game film to practice casting over. Because if it was just a raw footage of the gameplay, then they can practice it how much, how, like, however they want. And that helped casters, which helped me because they remembered, oh yeah, Willow's the one that did all that observing for free and did all of that stuff for, and like gave us like raw footage to cast over. I really like their observing. Let's bring them onto this broadcast. And so like, I would get gigs that way where I would just meet up with people because I just kept on doing things. If you do things and are consistent with it, it's way easier to get into esports than anything else. And it's that, and it's just starting to learn your craft. I would argue, this is a, this was a big controversial take, but in order to learn your craft, if you don't have any experience in it, you need to do stuff for free and volunteer to get that experience. And the reason why is because no one's going to pay you to learn that. In any other position, you would go to school first before you do it, right? So for me, when I first started, it was a lot of doing everything and anything I could for free and learning my craft and then starting to, to charge. And, and that like going from free to, to charging is a bridge that is very hard to cross. And I completely understand that because I did the same exact thing. But the main thing is doing it, getting your reps in. And when you're like, okay, I am confident enough that, that I can start charging for, for what I'm doing because I have a reel or I have resume or because I know my work, you know, that sort of thing, then you could start like getting the ball rolling. But a hundred percent, the one thing that I've seen that people just don't do is just getting into a broadcast. For a lot of these games, you can find leagues online completely remote that people are just doing like for fun jump in, be like, hey, like, I'm just practicing observing, can I practice on your broadcast? People love that. People love when they're like, hey, like, I can stream your broadcast for free on whatever Twitch channel you want, if you let me observe. And then you also just find other people that are like, hey, like, I'm looking to cast, you want to pair up? Because a lot of the time it was me pairing up with a caster to make sure that both of us were improving, both of us were working together. And I would just follow those casters around as they would get gigs. So like, just doing it. Observe, past something, put it out there. Make sure that, that you're like improving as well, not just going through the motions. Learn your craft, charge for the craft, 
get into the craft professionally, which is way harder than it sounds. I know I just did like the one, two, three thing and it was very cute, but it's way harder than it sounds. And when you say caster, that's the person who's announcing, who's calling. Yes. And the observer is somebody who is following the players. They are the camera operator in game. So observers is short for in-game observer. They're also sometimes called in-game spectators, but that, you, that term has just kind of been phased out. But in-game observer is the camera operator of the game. Think like any camera operator in like any, like baseball, football, like any of that. They would be the in-game observers in, in esports. Okay. And in order to do that, they have to have access into that game. Right. In that kind of a role, right? Not just... Yes. It is a special designated role in the lobby. Is there anything that we haven't talked about or mentioned that I just didn't touch on that you think is important? I just think it's very important to know that like esports is still in its in its infancy in a weird way where even though it's been around for... It's been around for longer than you think. But in terms of like it really like starting to blow up, that's only really starting to come into its own like recently and what really helps with and what's comforting at least for me as someone who's trying to stay in this industry is that you really don't know where it's going you get really weird like crossover skills in sports i found but it works out really well if you're creative like if you're just like oh i know how to do this because of this completely non-related thing from like three years ago but it does apply here i have seen broadcast being saved by that sort of dumb knowledge like it, it's really weird how this makes people really kind of become like master jack of all trades and that's something that is very good for for crossing over into other industries too if you want to go that route so yeah esports is a very weird and interesting industry and while i have no idea how it's going to end up it's been very fun to kind of navigate that and just see what happens with it and something else you said that just triggered something for me. A lot of these tournaments are worldwide. You've got people from different countries and are there multiple casters that are casting in different languages or does the, does it always happen in English and it's translated somewhere on the back end or? No, no, no. Um, so sometimes it can be upwards of like 30 plus languages that are being uh, translated overnight like within like three hours of the content being ready. That's crazy. Well, Willow, thank you. Thank you very much. All right, bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Theater Project Thinks About. Our audio engineer was Gary Glore, and our theme music was by Gail Liu and Damien DeSandes. Visit thetheaterproject.org to sign up for our mailing list, as well as check out all the links and resources in the show notes. And if you enjoyed what you heard today, please consider leaving a comment on our Facebook or Instagram page. That's all for this episode. We'll see you next time.